nothing much to take I'm an absolute beginner Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from another fantastic producer. I love these conversations. This week it is the most excellent Clive Langer. Now Clive's done a lot of things, I'll get to that in a second, but back in the 70s he starts out fronting a band called Deaf School in Liverpool. Now they never went on to be like global superstars, but they were a really big deal there locally. We talk about that in here. Uh, And that starts getting him some attention. He goes on to form a band called Clive Langer and the Boxes that are also great, but he sort of falls into production, starting with Madness. We love Madness around here. He's worked on just about everything Madness has ever done. So him and his long-term production partner, Alan Winstanley, have worked on so many things that we love, like uh, Teardrop Explodes and Elvis Costello. They produced Come On Eileen by Dexy's Midnight Runners. They produced 16 Stone by Bush, that huge album, and the Flood album by They Might Be Giants. We talk about those in here. We talk about Hot House Flowers. We talk about the Style Council. Get this, he produced the soundtrack to the movie Absolute Beginners, which featured the Style Council, and uh, featured this song right here, Absolute Beginners by David Bowie. Now, there's a little bit of a bittersweet moment in here. Uh, Back in March, when I interviewed Clive, I reached out to our former guest, Matthew Seligman, on March 14th and asked him if he had any recollections about working with Clive, because Matthew plays bass on this song right here. And uh, that was the last time I spoke with Matthew. He was 100% fine. About nine or ten days later, he caught COVID, and unfortunately, he passed away. It is so tragic, and it is so eerie, I'm afraid, to listen to this conversation and near the beginning I start out asking him about uh, I, I went to Matthew for some stuff and Matthew gave me some information to include in this interview and I mention it and now Matthew's no longer with us and that is so sad and so we wanted to pay tribute to both of them by playing this fantastic song Absolute Beginners Clive also worked on the Dancing in the Street song that Bowie did with Mick Jagger and uh, we talk about that in here as well Anyway, there's Morrissey, there's uh, all kinds of people, you guys know I love Morrissey. There's all kinds of stories in here, and I think you're going to love them because there's so much great music, okay? I hope you enjoy this. He called me from his home in London. For starters, I've been, th- <laughs> I've been thinking about a lot of how I want to kick this off because you've done so much stuff, but I'm a- I worry that if we don't talk about what you're working on now, we may not ever get there because there's so many other fun things. So tell me about the Clang Group. This is your moment to kind of promote to us. What are some things that you're working on right now that you want us to know about? The Clang Group was something, Death School kind of got together again about 2006. We're doing a lot of Death School shows Mm. and it's quite hard to get Death School together because it's like a circus. You know, we made three albums in the 70s for Warner Brothers. We toured America, we did you know, we did everything but didn't make it. Mm-hmm. But it, in in Liverpool, we did make it. Mm-hmm. Up north, we're like, we can go there, we can play like 800 people a night, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but all that sort of thing. I mean, London, we could do four. So anyway, it's, it's kind of still a, a vibrant thing. But when I got to the age of 60, I'm now 65, 
I decided there was a few things in life that I wanted to do. And one of them was to make a racket with my own band, mm. you know, turn the guitar up, forget about the singers in front. For months, I thought, oh, I need a singer. And then the drummer, Greg, who had come from Cheap Hotel, he, he said, well, didn't you used to sing? And, and I said, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, well, a few albums with the boxes and mm -hmm. whatever in the 80s, just before my production work took off. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, I thought, OK, I'll have a go. So for my 60th birthday, I, I booked out the Dublin Castle in Camden and showed off my new project. <laughs> Luckily, in, in the audience, besides, you know, Dave Robinson and various other people, there was Lawrence Bell from Domino Records, and he kind of liked it. He said, oh, it's got the spirit of Sid, you know, Sid yeah. Barrett in it and stuff like that. So it was like, so I was like, well, okay, can we do a single? Can we do it? <laughs> he's, he's a friend of mine. I've been working for Domino, doing bits and pieces, a, a guy called Eugene McGuinness, and recently the Fat White Family. Mm. Anyway, he became a friend, and he indulged me. And initially, I did an EP. hard to get any press for an EP let's let's you know go ahead you've done these new songs I like them let's do an album so uh, two years ago I suppose we I had an album out it's amazing you know yeah. I, I was really pleased and it was like a project that I'm very proud of I'm proud of the album the EP and we did loads of dates and but you know it just it didn't take off it didn't make money no. it can't you know, it's the normal story. Yeah. But I'm actually at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm doing it the cheap way now. I'm just doing some demos. There's a writing room that Domino Music has. And I go in there every six months, put down three or four songs, walk out, you know, spend two days on it. And I'm almost getting to the, the point where I've got 10 or 11 songs. Mm. And I, I want to put an album out and call it Demonstration Disc 1. It will just be demos, but I think uh, I'll put some real drums on it and put some a string quartet on it. Otherwise, leave it as a demo and just put it out, you know, yeah. online, just to keep me going, you know. Yeah, it must be. I talk to a lot of producers, and, and as I said, talking to you guys are one of my favorite things to do because it's so fun to run down your career. But I often worry about some of you because an artist that you produced is able to go out and play shows and still make money. But the producers, unless they have a point 
and they and they were on an album that continues to sell mightily. I worry that you guys don't have enough, you know, revenue yeah. coming in, enough mailbox money. So a lot of well, you, like Trevor Horn or Tony Visconti or whoever, are starting to turn to live shows in some form or another. It sounds like you are too. That's probably a good yeah. move. Well, the only thing is with me, it actually costs me to do a live show. So, ah, yes. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, maybe it's different for... You know, Trevor does things in a big way, and 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 Visconti has the whole Bowie thing now to yeah. to fall back on. Whereas I'm going out with something completely new. I'm not doing any any hits that I've produced or anything. This is just pure new stuff, and I'm, yeah. I make a I make a lot of noise. Like I've, <laughs> I've, I've got a lot of pedals. I've got my old AC30 that like 1962 or something that cost me 15 quid in 1974 uh-huh. and i really love that so it's not money making I, with deaf school we can make a few bob i do make money from, okay. from my recordings and luckily i've kind of paid off all mortgages and things like that oh, so good. I, I think you know it's been up and down but i've always been sensible enough with with properties and stuff to survive okay i'm i'm i've been very lucky good oh that's great you deserve it so i reached out to a couple of your friends or people you've worked with who have been on the show to find out if there are things i should ask you about specifically and one of them was matthew seligman the bassist i love matthew he's been on here a couple of times and he he sent me over a quote Here's quite an interesting quote. In the whole history of Liverpool music, two bands matter most. One is the Beatles and the other is Deaf School. And that's attributed to Paul DeNoyer. And I I thought, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Deaf School didn't make much of a dent over here in the States. So... heard of deaf school but i don't know that i've paid enough attention over the years but if they're the second most important thing to ever come out of liverpool that's a that's huge praise i'm guessing yeah. originally the idea was for you to become your own freestanding musician because i think i read or saw somewhere that you sort of stumbled into production accidentally right yeah yeah that's true i mean i've got the paul denoy a uh, book in front of me that he wrote about deaf school I mean, Deaf School actually was signed to Warner Brothers America. Derek Taylor signed us in, in England, but because he was good friends with Mo Austin and everything, we became an American signing. Ah. Uh, and we toured America, one big tour in 77. 
And, you know, we were supposed to be the next big thing. There was a bloke called Johnny Rotten and, you know, no. Mick Jones had turned up. And they were all our, our contemporaries. But we were, we were in Liverpool doing something new. They were in London doing something new. Mm. And they eclipsed us. I think we would have fitted in more into the new wave post-punk mm. period. But we already done it. I mean, also yeah. we signed to Warners. We, we, I mean, Richard Branson wanted to sign us. If we'd signed to Virgin, it would have been a very different picture. Oh. We might, you know, we might have appeared to have been a bit more cooler. And uh, but we, you know, the press didn't like us because we were with the with the big boys. But we were we were an art college band, and we were trying to do something very different, but using you know our knowledge of, of pop and rock mm-hmm. and the whole history you know from from Flanagan and Allen and the Kinks and rock you know and then yeah. via rock music yeah. and Kilburn fire roads and everything and we, we we found a sort of niche especially up north where glam was a bit bigger than it was down mm. south yeah and we were we were almost if we'd been in London we would have been a pub rock band and we would have appeared about the same time as you know, The Damned or something, or, yeah. you know, maybe a, a tiny bit before. But it was, a, you know, incredible experience. It was like a dream for me because, okay. I'm, you know, I went to art college. We all went to art college. There was no music colleges, no mm-hmm. no lippers and whatever. And in fact, we went to art college in the lipper, what is now the lipper building. Um, we started a group and it took off. Yeah, uh, It was like amazing. We just like, after three gigs, we had queues around the block. That's great. You know, then we turned up in London, played the pubs, and there was queues around the block. Uh-huh. And then punk came in about three or four months later. Yeah, and and the punk guys were coming to see us. You know, I, be- mm. I became friendly with Glenn Matlock and oh, I nice. knew Mick, Mick Jones well. And you know, we were kind of like the same age. And, yeah. You know, it just we came out a bit weird, yeah. and they, and they all, and they all kind of followed the. The mainstream, you know, it wasn't. It was the anti-mainstream. Sure. But sure. You're not. Yes, I do. Yeah. But when I listen back to Deaf School, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Split Ends, and yeah. you yeah. worked with Tim Finn later on, and I wondered if that was sort of a common language. Is that what sort of did did he uh, communicate to you, or vice versa, that you guys were a you know an influence on one another, or sort of a kindred spirit in that kind of art poppy. Uh, fun, well, you know. We actually came out at the same time as Ultravox and mm. Split Ends, so we we were very aware of them because we were an art rock band. So with those two, but when I worked with Tim, it, it was nothing to do with it really. Oh, okay. It was, it was decades later. You know, I don't know if he was a disco fan. I don't know if I was a Split Ends fan. Mm. You know. Okay. Uh, but I I always thought split ends were great but i didn't yeah. go home and listen to them you know? uh got it okay okay one 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 more thing i want to mention about uh deaf school for anyone who's listening and is unfamiliar check out a song called what a way to end it all goodbye cruel and cheerio throughout this time i've got to go What a way to end it all Goodbye, cruel world It's all so up You've got it made And I'm out of love All right, okay, let's go Oh, 
really love your Supremes guitar lick in that uh, yeah. song because you're the guitarist for Deaf School, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, oh, you know, I wrote the music, so I mean, I always loved that Supremes thing, and you know, Bowie used it, everyone, SOS kind of guitar line, I still really like that. You know, that was the first song on the first album. If you get into the second album and you listen to Taxi and Capaldi's Caff, we're changing. We were kind of got less production, less produced. Except, and then we did the third album with Mutt Langer. You did? I uh, didn't know you worked with Mutt on that. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. He did the third album, and that's how I learned quite a few tricks. You know, I I was the guy that would stay in the control room. I, I was drinking it up. Well, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. you know, we had Muff Winwood and and Mutt Langer. So, wow. But Deaf School was quite something, you know, really, yeah. and. It, it's really still appreciated, but up north, you know, Liverpool, we, we could do the, you know, the Everyman Theatre for three nights, and it, it's quite, you know, you feel proud of, of it, yeah. even though it didn't take off. Yeah, know? yeah. Wow. Well, good for you. There's a lot to discover there. Okay, so you, I, I, as I said, I think I mentioned, I saw somewhere that you had sort of accidentally stumbled into producing, and I'm going to guess that's with Madness. I think uh, yeah. of most of the things that, most of the acts that you're associated with, it seems like Madness is the longest standing collaboration or partnership, yeah. if you will. How did this happen? Well, it was to do with deaf school. Um, it also to do with the fact that Mike Barson's brother, Ben Barson, who's an amazing musician, was an old friend of mine, and he uh. later was part of the boxes. We grew up together, kind of messing about with music in North London. And uh, his younger brother, Mike, was around on the scene, and he had his, these friends who were kind of like a gang, who were pretty cool, and they'd come and see Death School. They really liked Death School. I mean, later, Suggs married Bessie Bright, who was the singer in Death School. Oh, I didn't um, realize. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm going to tell you a few, few things you probably didn't realize. Yeah. But, so so I'm, I'm on stage at the Roundhouse in London, and I turn around to my right, and I see these kids, and they're dressed up like sort of skinheady, but kind of cool. You know, they weren't like, it wasn't like an aggressive thing. Uh-huh. And I talked to them afterwards, and they said they've start, they started a group. You know, we've started a group climb, but do, uh, <laughs> do you want to have a listen to us? And, you know, I went to the rehearsal and Deaf School was spitting up then it was probably the last gig we did 1978 you know autumn probably and I went to the rehearsal and they played me this song called My Girl My girl's mad at me I didn't want to 
And so suddenly, yeah, I mean, I still didn't think I was a producer. I had Clive Anger in the boxes going then. I, I'd done an album for Radar. You know, I was supporting Elvis Costello, supporting Madness on mm. my own little band after post-death school. But we went in, did that album, and it took off like a, you yeah. know, box of records. Yeah. It was like, it was like, you know, it still is. It's still bloody selling. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, part of the history of it is. pop. It is. You know, and I remember coming home after doing it and at five in the morning, <clears> just, you know, so we finished it on time so that it could be released at, at the right time. We tried, <laughs> that was funny. Dave Robinson heard that the special's first album's coming out on the 14th of whatever. Uh -huh. And so he's, we're going to get ours, ours out on the 7th. And uh, <laughs> you know, they were going through a major and we were going through stiff. So anyway, we got this, you know, madness record out a week early, a, a week before them. Anyway, I, I, I came home after we'd finished and we had to finish it, you know, it was a deadline. Yeah. And I remember just playing it and thinking, oh God, it sounds terrible. <laughs> you know, it's there, it's like naive. It's like, you know, it's not Steely Dan. You know. uh -huh. <laughs> but there you go, that's, that's yeah. what happens. Okay. Let me ask you specifically about One Step Beyond because, I mean, you know this, it's a classic, but it also doesn't follow any typical pop song structure at all. It's got a lar long introduction, and then it's basically an instrumental, a frantic one, with the same line being, s you know, screamed out every now and then. What, it, uh, John, it, don't, yeah. don't you, do you not know the story of that? I don't think I do. The Nazis sound around. So if you've come in off the street and you're beginning to feel the heat, well, listen, Buster, you better start to move your feet to the rockin'est, rock-steady beat of madness. One step beyond. Okay, One Step Beyond, the song, was, we did it as they did it live, and it was about one minute ten oh. or something. Okay, so Dave Robinson comes in and says, well, you know, we've got to make a single out of this. And so we said, fine, you know, leave us alone for a few hours. We chopped it up and repeated the whole song uh, from a certain period uh -huh. in it. But we just put it through a harmonizer, which is like a double tracking piece of equipment. You know, it just uh -huh. makes it kind of go zing, 
and uh, gave it to him as a demo of what we were going to do with the track because we would have repeated it, got the boys in, got added a, a different part to it, made it sound different, whatever. The next thing we know, he's put it out. And the, 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 the you know the version we sent him oh, wow. the demo of what we could do. So no wonder it sounds like it's repeating itself. It is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. Uh, that song. So I'll tell you, my my kids when we when they were little, that was one of their favorite songs. And so my little like you know five and four year old kids, we would we would yell that front that introduction to each other all the time. And it was a proud Papa moment for me when my four and five year old children knew every word to the intro of One Step Beyond. I was uh, that was a proud moment for me. Yeah. Hey you. Yeah, yeah. Don't watch that. Watch this. Anyway, I could go on and on. So, I, I mean, I could talk to you about every Madness album in depth, but there are a couple of tracks I just want to ask you about. Specifically, I feel like you should tell us about Michael Caine. I am Michael Caine. Michael Caine come into the studio? Did he even know what he was doing when he sent off the My Name is Michael Caine for that song? What, is there a story there? What is it? Well, Carl wrote that, and it was a piece of work probably I did mainly with Carl. He just said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we got Michael Caine to say, yeah, my name is Michael Caine. So I was going to go to the Hilton or somewhere and, and, and record him. But we hadn't finished the album. We were pressurised to finish the album. So I think uh, someone who worked at Stiff was just sent down there. We said, just get him to say it 10 times, you know. I mean, I really regret not going there and meeting him, mm. etc. But it was a kind of... Uh, to me, that song, what uh, was in my mind musically was that Eno album, Here Come the Warm Jets. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very simple. You know, do, 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 do. It's very simple, and it's not like madness. There's no scar in it. So I kind of worked on it really with Carl, and it was a one-off. All those singles, they, you know, if you think of driving in my car or whatever, they're yeah. they're like vignettes. You know, that you you right. What is this True. about? What's down like? 
let's make the most of it. Let's let's make it as good as it can be. Uh, you know, make it interesting. So that was one of those kind of colourful. Like he he did Wings of a Dove as well, Carl. Oh, so one. you know, so you, so you colour it in whatever colour you think fits the song, yeah. and and you go for it big time. And if you need to acquire, you get acquiring because we can afford it because uh-huh. they're having. You know, and if we want Michael Caine, let's go and get Michael Caine. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Okay, one more. Let's talk about Our House, because I'm sure you know this. Our House is the song that kind of broke them in America, but it also remains kind of their one hit. That was the song. I was a little kid. I was like 10 years old, and that song is the one that knocked me out, made me a Madness fan. When you're working with them and Our House is starting to break them in the States, you're so close to them. I'm imagining you're sort of sharing in the joy of this as well. What was that like for them when they're starting to get played on American radio? Well, it was great because they were on top of the pops here and they were talking about it being a hit in the States, you know, and so it was like our house in the middle of the Bronx. <laughs> it was all, uh, so, so there was recognition in England of their success with that song oh. in the States. But that song to me was almost along with sort of things like Every Day I Write a Book or mm. uh, a couple of other songs we did in the 80s where we were competing with Trevor Horn, yeah. um, whatever. And I think we hit a sort of perfection with the, with the production of that. I mean, yeah. it was a complicated piece of work to put together. You know, the key changes, the intro, like the, uh, the strings, David Bedford's strings, unbelievable. Yeah. You know... Uh, Everything kind of, we had a, we had a chorus, you know, we yeah. had an amazing chorus. The album we were working on wasn't so popping, but we kind of, we had this one track and it was like, let's do everything in our power at this time to make this a hit, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so that was, I think, one of mine and Alan's finest moments. Yes, I agree. I agree, it sure is. Okay, before I move on beyond madness, do you have a... Favorite madness story? You know, what's when you look back on your association, which has been going on still to this day, what's your favorite madness story? I I quite liked it when Lee, who's quite tight, he used to be quite tight with money. We put five a, a five pound note on the floor when he was about to do a saxophone solo, uh-huh. uh, and he goes, "I found a fiver." <laughs> we knew he'd get really excited and and that actually we put that on I can't remember which album but it, it actually is the intro to one of the songs you're right so there's a, there's a little story okay okay that's great I've been uh, I've been trying to get one of them to come on the show for years because I just want to know what they're they're you know they're an industry now in the UK but they don't ever come over here or pay the US any attention well, well they, they, were, they were supposed to be there now I think Oh really? Oh, that's right. I yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. Hopefully, I can get one of them to talk to me one of these days. Okay, uh, let's talk about the teardrop explodes. And I'll admit, I'm not an expert. I do have their greatest hits, and I like it a lot. At, but Julian Cope has a reputation for being sort of a little bit of a mad genius. You know, he is a little bit crazy and a little bit genius. What was your experience yeah. like working with Julian in that band? It was fine. I got on with him quite well. He was a bit kind of like, wow, wow. Yeah. <laughs> we had kids 
uh, Eric's in Liverpool, who used to come and see Deaf School, or be at Eric's if we were playing. I mean, there was, you know, the Bunny Men, um, the Teardrops, um, uh, Pete Wiley, etc. And they'd just be hanging out there. And then I think Bill Drummond started managing them. And just, it wasn't like, an, I, I'd had a bit of success. So it was a, an experiment to see how we'd get on if, mm. if I produced them. And I, it was one of the early productions with Alan at TW, which was... Uh, a cheap studio in Fulham and we did treason I was really proud of it. I thought, treason, wow, it's, you know, it sounds amazing. So it's put out, but it wasn't really a hit. And then but they, they, their album did quite well, I think. And then mm -hmm. we did the reward, which yeah, actually okay. was going yeah, to be the B-side of another song. But we did it quite quickly, the reward, and it just sounded amazing. Single. It was a hit, and uh, then they re-released Treason. It was a hit. You know that's happened a couple of times in my career where something doesn't happen, but then you get the timing right, and yeah. and you get the push behind it from the record companies, and you you get your hit. You know, and then we did the, the album with them. Well, we did a couple of tracks in the first time. I I did the second album without them, except together we did Passionate Friend. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I really liked working with them. They, they were very open. That, that second album I did with them, we were kind of experimenting quite a lot. It didn't sell that much, but it was a really good album. Yeah. 
I need to dig into them more. <clears throat> like I said, I know the hits and that's about it. Yeah. You mentioned Elvis earlier. Is Deaf School opening for Elvis Costello what eventually brought you on to produce Punch the Clock and Goodbye Cruel World? It wasn't Deaf School who opened. It was Clive Langer and the Boxes. Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. Well, no, I, I think prior to that, I had written a tune that he helped write the lyric for, and we gave it to Robert Wyatt. Shipbuilding. Ship yeah. Yeah. Classic. A new winter coat and shoes for the wife And a bicycle on the boy's birthday It's just a rumour that was spread around town By the women and children Soon we'll be shipbuilding Well, I ask you the boy said, Dad, they're going to take me to task. But I'll be back by Christmas. It's just a rumour that was spread around town. Somebody said that someone got filled in for saying that people get killed. So that, that's where we kind of bonded. And then I can't remember if I'd, I'd already played with him live. or He li he liked Clive Langer and the Boxes. He liked the EP. First gig we did up was on a boat in Liverpool, and he asked to support us. So he supported my first ever solo gig and played all his hits, which I mm. thought was really lovely of him. Yeah. You know, like... <laughs> He's playing like Chelsea, Allison, everything uh -huh. like eight songs just before I go on and do my first ever gig. We had a you know, we had a bond, and I could went to this party at Nick Lowe's in name dropping, ding ding, and Elvis was there, and I said, look, just come into my, I've got a golf outside, it's got a stereo in it. I've just done this demo, I want Robert White to sing it, and he came in the car and he went, well, yeah, 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 got it, got it, and he wrote the words. So that that really bonded us. Then we did a couple couple of albums with him. And the brief yeah. for, for Punch the Clock was Elvis needs a hit, especially in America. Mm -hmm. And so we we did we we kind of went for a commercial album, which I don't think he liked, but it did the job. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah. Well, it uh, so I have a couple of questions. Number one, what made you want to write that song for Robert Wyatt? What was, uh, was it an idea that came to you? This, this melody was pretty and you thought, who, I could see Robert Wyatt singing this. Or were you singing no, purposely? No, no, no. Okay. The catalyst was hearing Robert Wyatt singing Strange Fruit. Ah, interesting. Billy, Billy Holiday okay. song. You know, I mean, well, so I heard that and I thought, I want to write something as beautiful as that. Mm. And I really want Robert Wyatt to sing it. I don't. I don't want to sing it myself or anyone else. That's what I told Elvis. But I spent 
ages, well, maybe two or three months on the piano perfecting the tune and put, I, I, you know, I could sing the melody and then it was ready to present to, to mm. EC. Yeah. Mm. That's amazing. And, okay. Yeah. Well, it was a dream. It was a dream. You know, you know then, then the album that Strange Fruit was on, they added shipbuilding to for the later pressings. Mm. So it, it really was a dream. And it was nothing to do with record companies or money or, you know, it was just a project that I was driven to do. Yeah, yeah. And I went along with it 100%. That's incredible. Okay, let me ask you, I wanted to ask you specifically about Goodbye Cruel World because that, I think, if I remember correctly, I got the collect the reissue from the 90s or something of that album and i think the the liner notes even say elvis starts out by saying you know welcome to the worst album i ever put out something yeah. like that right and so i want to know what happened and then i also want to hear if there's a story about getting daryl hall involved in only flame in town i'd love to hear that too yes well there is a story because the album was was like I wanted to carry on from Punch the Clock. I wanted to create 80s intelligent pop. And he was, he kind of whispered in my ear, this is going to be the last album I do, you know, Goodbye Cool World. And, mm. you know, and I don't think Alan, see, Nick Lowe could have made that sound rough and cool. Yeah. But I don't think it's in Alan's vocabulary to do that. So, you know, like, everything's kind of in the studio it's very strict and you know yeah. he's recorded the instruments like he did for punch the clock but that really what elvis wanted was a live you know sort of get back feel to it uh. so we we were all unhappy and i remember at some point i said to elvis well thanks a lot for you know and he took over he kind of like mm. you know because he's quite a powerful guy in lots of ways he sort of took over the production really and so at a certain point I'm just sitting there and just like, fuck this it's That's like Thank, thanks Elvis for inviting me along to listen to you make your record uh. I said to <laughs> yeah. so then then he, then he kind of he bought a bottle of gin and I bought a bottle of vodka and we went out I remember actually it was because we went out for dinner with Julian Temple to talk about absolute beginners that night mm. and we we, we we liked each other enough for it not for any worse than that yeah and then there was a couple of songs that he was playing around with and i just was wanted to revert back to where we were with, with punch the clock so uh -huh. you know i want to be loved and and the barrel you know the yeah only flame in town
yeah, exactly. Yeah. They got they got produced. They had production. You know, they, uh-huh. they and the songs were, were they were open to production. Open, you know, they were pop music as well as being, you know, interesting, intelligent songs. So they were the two that became the singles, and they were back to us combining mm. our forces. Whereas, the, you know, the, it was just a bit like naff a lot of the basically it's songs isn't it you know yeah, so kind of, do, kind know, of is, yeah yeah i mean if, if i'd sniffed a hit in one of the other ones i would have gone for it but. <laughs> yeah i had bruce thomas on here a couple of years ago and of course he's got conflicting conflicted he's got a lot of feelings i should say about elvis and that what yeah. he's like to deal with so i can imagine who's first of all whose idea was it to even call daryl hall and did he come to the studio and record his bit, or did he record it somewhere else and you splice them together? Elvis actually wanted him to do backing vocals. I mean, when we were talking about people doing backing vocals, I think, you know, Green, we both agreed, and I was a big Green fan. He was more of a Hall and Oates fan than I was. Mm-hmm. And we left the studio we were working in, in Goring, which is near Reading, outside of London, about 30 miles and came into air to record him. Uh, it was John Hall, wasn't it? And at that point, Alan Winstanley had a Rolls Royce because he, mm-hmm. he kind of liked things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, <laughs> I, I probably had a Land Rover, but, you know, it was like we have different tastes. But right. um, so me and Alan, were, um, me and Elvis were in the back of the car, yapping away, and we're going over the Westway, coming into town, and there was an oil slick and like three cars had spun around in front of us mm. and we go flying along and the you know the rolls royce radiator knocks a ford smashes it up and knocks that flying so we're kind of like oh my god what's going on I, so i said look we're, i'll drop down i'll go to the townhouse studios i'll walk with these tapes and get them sent over to where and you know there was some, some mad plan we had Anyway, they they abandoned the Rolls Royce and went into. They got to air before I did, but I had the tapes, mm. and I, I eventually got there. And you know, he he was fine. He was cool, and he quite American and yeah. lovely. You know, <laughs> and, and, and we recorded it. <laughs> okay, okay, quite American. I I can I can imagine what that might be. That's interesting. Well, it, okay, you know. It, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you and Alan, you know, did you, how did you divide up the responsibility? Is there something that he did that he was especially good at and you did that you were good at or was it everything? What was it? What, what was the partnership dynamic like? Well, I came to it from, I mean, it's quite, we're definitely defined in, in our different skills. I would always spend more time with the band in rehearsals, arrangements, songwriting and hmm. uh, that side of things i don't know how to work a desk oh. i don't touch i don't touch a, a mixing desk i don't touch a computer hmm. it's not what i do and okay. alan was brought up recording in small studios building studios and you know getting the best equipment that he could and talking to rupert neve and going to ssl and you hmm. know uh, so there's an engineering songwriting arranger kind of balance between the two got it okay oh that's fascinating 
Okay, I feel like we got to talk about Dexy's Midnight Runners. Very similar to Madness, Come On Eileen is still a huge staple over here, and it's the only thing anyone ever knows about Dexy's on this side of the pond, but they had had, they had a lot of other stuff going on over there. Tell us about the creation of that song specifically. When, when, who decided to make it sound the way that it did? Who decided everyone was going to dress like that? You know, was it uh, an understood well, it, from the get-go it, it, that this was going to be an American hit too? No, I mean, there's one answer to that and that's Kevin Rowland. Okay. We were invited to work with them. We did the Celtic Soul Brothers as a tryout and it was, that sounded really good and, but it wasn't a hit and then it was later again. Mm-hmm. Another one of those ones. after we did the Celtic Soul Brothers and heard the whole album and Kevin just performed it like they did live like an army and Come On Eileen it was to me I didn't do hardly anything because it was all there the whole slow down build up everything Mm -hmm. I mean I'd had subtle subtle changes to things but Kevin knew exactly what he wanted so it's probably why I didn't work with him on the next album but he wanted Alan to he didn't want another opinion. But while we were doing the Come and Eileen, you know, I was also doing Our House. So I kind of, you know, almost did more than I should have with Our House. Oh. Maybe I should have a writing credit or something. Do you know what I mean? So it, yeah. in in my mind, I was justifying my existence because it was such a big hit and yeah. I made so much money out of it. But it, I didn't do much. Huh. That's fascinating. So you're working on Our House and Come on Eileen like simultaneously? Not not simultaneously, but, uh, you know, around the same period. Okay. I mean, I think also what it says is that maybe a producer's role can be leave it alone. Ah, ah. So, the, so what... When, when, okay. when it's appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So, Come On Eileen is more... De- your contribution is more defined by what you didn't do than what you did do. It sounds like Kevin had it all worked out. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And I... I, I helped to get it made in a period of time that was allocated because he was quite renowned for spending, you know, four times that amount of time uh. to get it made. So there was it was a different kind of way of working and thinking. I mean, I did, you know, I I I know I did some good things, but they were minimal compared to yeah. the other productions I was doing. Okay, so and it became so big. It's like, yes. 
Okay, so that was going to be my next question. Again, we've established you're kind of working on Our House and Come On Eileen around similar times. And you're working, yeah. as I've said, with these very British, fantastic bands that are pushing pop along over there. But you're seeing suddenly American success. But those are really, you know, if I go through the rest of the stuff here, well, maybe until They Might Be Giants, you're not seeing like, a, you know, top 40 hits necessarily in the States. During that um, period, are you thinking, we've got this cracked, we know now how to break America, or is it more of just a a surprise? I never thought about breaking America. Ah, okay. I wasn't like a professional producer mm. in, in a lot of ways. I wasn't like Mutt Langer or Trevor Horn or, you know, I wasn't determined to break America. It was just, you know, I thought if the record's good enough, it will break in America. Okay. I was just curious, and I don't mean to sound like because I'm in I'm an American that that's the end all beat all. I just know that oftentimes bands talk about breaking America because there's more money to be made there, and so yeah. I'm I'm assuming everybody wants something to be as successful and popular as it can possibly be, and that oftentimes means breaking America so that you have more shows to play and more merch to sell and more money to be made. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not because we, I think America is the best or anything. We, yeah. We broke America with Bush. Yeah. And, okay. Yes. And they didn't, they didn't break England. That's so, that's true. Wow. Weird. Well, let's talk about Bush. Record, it was the biggest selling record I've, I've ever made. Yes. Okay. So let's jump ahead to Bush. How did this even happen? Out of nowhere. Well, Not only is it out of forward. nowhere, but the sound is out of nowhere compared to so many other things you've worked on, you know? We were kind of like not doing that much. I had dinner with someone and he said, oh, I know this band. I, and I think you should produce them. And they were called Future Primitive and they were on D Disney Records or something. So I played it to Alan and they didn't have much money. So we said, well, we'll do it for half the price, but give us an extra quarter point, you know, in case mm -hmm. it's something happens and we made the record and we kind of got on pretty well and Gavin came in and played Alan loads of Pixies records and mm -hmm. things like that and then it, it, we gave them the album everyone loved it, it sounded amazing actually yeah. and what, the reason it sounded amazing was because as we were making it we took things out oh. we kept it very simple so you could have the sound of two guitars one on each side of the stereo with yeah. bass and drums sounding very pure Kurt, you know Kurt Cobain died yeah. which you know and then they re-release it with a new label you know and suddenly it's like in the malls it's, yeah. it's you know when you've got a record in the malls yeah <laughs> you've, got, you've got a hit you know yeah. I, I was about the, I had a house I was, about, I was telling the drummer that I was, oh god I think I've got to sell it he went don't mm. <laughs> I'm over here and you know that k Rock picked up on it it spread like a like a virus yeah you know and, it, and all the girls loved him and boom, 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 you know yeah absolutely i saw them in concert very early on i'll never forget it I'm, i went to college in utah the byu and yeah. so not a lot of bands come through utah especially back then it's better now and simple minds who are like in my top 10 favorite bands of all time were coming yeah. and the opener was bush and bush had just come out were brand new yeah. starting to get played i went to the show and i'm like front row because i want to see simple minds unfortunately after bush was done 
because it was mostly a college age crowd, most of the people left and there weren't as many people who stuck around for Simple Minds. But I just remember the, the animal magnetism of Gavin on that stage looking yeah. so sexy and commanding the room. You know, he you knew he was going places. You talk about what you took out of that album. Glycerine is a famously sort of understated song. Was that song different before you guys pulled everything out of it, or was that the idea all along? Yeah, you know, again, I rehearsed with them and sort of things, you know, tightened up the arrangements, but I didn't really change that much. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is the sound of the record. I mean, because after that, like, Dave Grohl wanted us to do the second Foo Fighters record mm. because of the sound of it but it was very like Nirvana so it's very it's kind of I found it a bit odd that the the similarity with Nirvana mm. create you know as far as the creativity of the song writing but I enjoyed it I really enjoyed it I enjoyed doing the that album but it, it was Again, not one where I, you know, really jumped in and changed much because okay. it sounded it sounded good. Good. Okay. It's a shame they weren't able to kind of maintain that. You know, the next album sort of underperformed, and then they've been sort of clawing their way back on ever since. It seems like, unfortunately, it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he did all right. You know. Yeah. Don't have to feel. No. <laughs> He's all right. Gwen, what she thinks. What about Hazy Fantasy? Oh, God, here we go. Hazy Fantasy. <laughs> shiny, shiny is a super fun song, but it's so weird. Yeah. I don't know what the story is with these guys.
and I think as well, that was the period where we were really getting into colourful production, mm-hmm. and we just kind of went for it, a bit like they might be giants or something, you know, you know, kind of just let's make a, you know, it's really poppy, it's bizarre, it's almost like pop art, and then then it led to working with Marilyn, so we had a few top twenty hits between with the, the two of them. They, they all came out in the same stable or unstable stable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what was the concept i mean hazy fan it i i'm fuzzy on it but it's these two people and they're they they're dressed up kind of like raggedy ann and andy or something like that what was the was there a concept yeah. here i mean it was very uh mclaren really i'm uh, been after them but you know jeremy healy became a massive dj and she did well they, they were characters in london you know they were like larger than life and they weren't really musicians as such and so it was kind of fun record to make because you can you can put all your fireworks in there mm. you can put all your little explosions and bits mm-hmm. and pieces and they're like yeah 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 it's, you know it's not like working with um lloyd cole or something or okay or, or kevin or you know roland or yeah you know you're not hardly allowed to do much uh, and this was like pure pop and it was fun okay you mentioned Marilyn. I was going to ask you about that. What was that like? Because he, she is another one that we're not exactly sure in the States what to <laughs> think exactly. Because we know Marilyn as Boy George's boyfriend, basically. But they are, but also a recording artist? And is that, a, is that a byproduct of just being in the public eye? Was it real? What's the story? No, Marilyn was real on the scene, you know. But uh-huh. yeah, he, he was a girl boy, boy girl. Like, like Boy George, we just said we'll have a go, you know, uh-huh. and then we're number two in the chart. but he had a drug problem ah. which is kind of well documented so it's not a yeah. secret yeah but it, it meant that we couldn't move we couldn't keep going we couldn't couldn't finish a record and i was i again i was i really enjoyed the project because i had so much to do but if we couldn't turn up to sing then we we're yeah. stuck what's Marilyn doing now does it what's when was the last time anyone heard from Marilyn? i don't know i'm not even sure if he's alive oh but, okay uh, I'm not sure either, honestly. Yeah, I think he might, I mean, he just became a, a heroin addict. Oh, that's too bad. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. We got to talk about dancing in the street. Right. Bowie and Jagger. 
<laughs> I've talked about it with Matthew Seligman and Steve Thompson, who is who worked on those sessions, I believe. Yeah. Tell us the story. My understanding is that it's it's the late at night after is it an awards ceremony or live aid maybe or something? Tell me the story of dancing in the street. No, what happened was we were working on Absolute Beginners mm-hmm. with David, and David comes in and says, "We're going to do a charity record tonight. If, if you're up for it, you know we're set up to record here. Do you mind playing Dancing in the Street for live aid? And it's only going to be a video, not going to be a record, whatever." So. In the morning, we recorded Absolute Beginners. In the afternoon, Mick turns up, jumping around the studio, you know, with his hand in the air, and we recorded Dancing in the Street. And then they went off that night to do the video through the night. And we went to see them. We watched them do the video, you know, for a few hours. And the next day, we went into Mick. And, you know, Mick was there, and... We, we mixed it as far as like, a rough mix because we, it, it wasn't finished. It was then sent to America and it was mixed there, finally. But it was, you know, the, the amazing thing was that on that day we had Absolute Beginners and Dancing in the Street. I think we had number one and number two in England. Oh, so, with it, we, and it was about eight hours. Wow. And most, most of the work was done, but... I mean, with absolute beginners, that was you know that was a journey that, that you know would carry on. You know, it became so anthemic. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you about absolute beginners because I love that song. But I gotta, I gotta ask. Dancing with the dancing in the street has become almost sort of a meme. You've probably seen the video of that's on YouTube of them. It takes the music out of the video it just shows them hopping around now i say this i bought the record when i was a kid david bowie is my number one favorite singer of all time i love that song but it has become a bit of a joke over the years and i wonder how you feel about that i feel good okay the fact that people are still talking about it is fine with you it's not me dancing up there uh, but i was there doing it it was kind of funny, you know, it's like, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I mean, it was very 80s, wasn't it? Uh-huh, you know? uh-huh. and, and what I do know is David was looking after Mick. Mm. David wanted Mick to be happy when we were recording it. And when they were dancing, he was kind of really, you know, he's going for, you know, it's big ego, two big egos. Yeah. But he wanted Mick to be, to be comfortable. Interesting. Do you know what, like, who decided to record that song? And who decided that Mick needed to be involved? It sounds like, did David come with it with the complete idea? I have an idea for a charity single and we're going to do Dancing with the Street or Dancing in the Street? Or did somebody advise him on that? I think they, they just, I don't know. I think they had a conversation on the phone maybe the night before or whatever and just said, what song can we do for Live Aid, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they had the concept, maybe... I don't know if it was David or Mick who decided to, you know, shout out at the beginning to every country. <laughs> they they were friends. You know, David said, is it all right if Mick comes in later? And I was going, you're all right. You yeah. Know? yeah, right. <laughs> it was a Saturday morning. It's like, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, it's classic. It's such, I love that song, but it, um, you know, 
it's it, more these days it makes people laugh than anything else yeah. but yeah 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 no it, yeah they, they they kind of went over the top yeah but it was for a good cause it was and it and it worked and yeah. and, and so it wasn't supposed to be released i mean it was just this video to be shown once that was the concept oh. and then they sniffed sniffed a bit of success and I, I thought it was always going to be a charity record. We all kind of signed off on it. Recently, I've, I've got like, you know, three quid from it because <laughs> their companies or whoever they are, I've decided it's not a charity record anymore. Oh. But, which is um, not very charitable. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, let me, I feel like we. I got to ask you about Morrissey. He's another one that you had kind of a long-standing relationship with. I uh, I love Morrissey. I know that these days it's unfashionable to like Morrissey, and I'm not educated enough, I guess, on all the ins and outs of British politics to feel too angry about his views or whatever. Um, I, maybe it's best that I don't look into it, but I love the guy for how much he has meant to me over my over the course of my life. So I wanted to ask about the creation now. In the States, a lot of the things we know that you worked on became the album Bona Drag, which was sort of a collection of singles, and then um, Kill Uncle, which I want to ask you about in a minute. I, uh, I reached out to Kevin Armstrong, who's also been on our show a couple of times, and yeah. Kevin told me to mention that the Morrissey sessions were pretty special, haunted bedrooms and seances. What does that mean? Alan and I worked at the manor which was a virgin recording studio out in the country and we didn't think it was that great and so we decided to have our own recording studio in the country and we found this place hook End manor that alvin lee from 10 years mm. after had lived in and he then sold it to dave gilmore from the pink floyd yeah and gilmore was selling it and we went to see it, and it was like, blimey, this place is amazing. You know, swimming pool, sauna, uh, 16th century house, croquet lawn, everything. It was like unbelievable. So we bought it from him because he sold it to us at a, 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 quite cheaply at that time because he knew it's going to be continue with music. And he had a little studio there. I think he'd recorded Kate Bush. And we knocked it all out and, and we had planning permission to build the largest control room in Europe. Mm. And, and, the, and the barn was an incredible recording space and we had a Bosendorfer for oh my God. So basically when, when we were recording with Morrissey there, which was, listen, I've got a few stories about that, but Morrissey thought it was haunted. Oh. And then, and then he wanted a seance and all that. I did. I didn't take it any. I didn't participate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the place was. I mean, it, it did. It dated back maybe from the 14th century. The centre of the house, you know, it mm -hmm. was very old. So it's easy to imagine that it was haunted. But it, it's something I, um, you know, I tended to kind of be sceptical about. Yeah. And it, you know. Okay. Boy, there are so many songs from that era I wanted to ask you about. One of my favorites is, well, you worked on Pregnant for the Last Time and November Spawned a Monster. I mean, these are classics. I, I, I wrote the music for November. so You did? No way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I and I put that middle bit in it after we recorded it. 
I said, you know, you know, Morrissey, would you, you know, what do you think about the idea that we actually put a piece of music in the middle that is like a film of the birth? November is a, is a big song for me. Ah, oh, I love that tune. Now, Kevin Armstrong plays guitar on that song, right? Yeah. This what? part was what, what I wrote on the piano. Really? Wow. Now, are you a lyricist or are you mostly just music? Mainly music, but okay. I have done uh, quite a few albums on my own, you know, Clive Lang and the Boxes True. and the Clang, and I'm a lyricist as well. Yeah. Did you write the music but, but or the lyrics like, for November? You can't be a lyricist with, with Morrissey. Yeah, that's good point. Good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're right. He's got that part taken care of. Yeah, that song is great. And the production, you're right, the production on that is so strong. I love that. Now, when you when you wrote that, were you thinking of Morrissey specific, specifically, or was it during the creation of those, while you were working with him, or had it, was it something that had been laying around? Yeah, well, um, basically with Morrissey, there was, you know, if he'd like to hear any piece of music that any person who's involved in a project has. Mm. So... At that point, it was pre-Mark Nevin, pre-Kilunkle. So it was me and Kevin and I can't remember who else, Andy Rourke, maybe. If we wrote a song, we'd just, you know, give him a cassette or whatever it was in those days. And he'd give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down, like a Roman Empire. And uh, he liked that one. Also, with Morrissey, you don't know where he's going to sing the chorus or the verse. I know where mm. I thought the verse should be. And, you know, he's, he's, the verse to him was an intro. And then, so he's singing the verse over the chorus. And then the chorus comes on some other bit. And, yeah. you know, you don't know until he comes down. And he says, yeah, I love that track. I'm going to, I'll come down and do a vocal, a vocal in, you know, two days or something. Yeah. And he comes does a vocal and, and it's like wow that's you know it's amazing it's like really powerful and that's when i sort of would suggest let's work on this yeah. let's take this film. let's make it I, I love songs that are adventures i've written uh, you know been involved with a few in my life they're the ones that kind of stand out you know that was one of them and luckily he liked my his music i wrote for the middle bit but yeah. that was plonked in after he done his the initial recording. Fascinating, fascinating. What happened with Kill Uncle? Because that album is a yeah. real departure, and it feels. I mean, everything leading up to that point had been Viva Hates, a great album, Bone of Drag, obviously, and then Kill Uncle. He seems to go in this weird other direction, and I don't know. It sort of, I think, stalled some of his momentum. At the time, what was the thinking behind that album? Vignettes, bits of music that followed his music. With it, um, I mean, his lyrics. It was like try to colour his lyrics with music and not try and... It wasn't attitude. It wasn't rock. It wasn't like, you know, Manchester mm-hmm. kind of dance music. And it was so unfashionable. But if you check that album out again... If you listen to it, that is the. I'm really proud of that album. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Listen to it, Ben. Listen to it. I, you're right. I haven't pulled it out in a long time. It's kind of an oddity. I have all of his solo albums, and that's the one I probably play the least. Fascinating. Okay, you saying that, I will. I'm going to go for a drive today and pull it out. 
Wow. Right. Okay. Because it's really, I think it's one of the best things I've done in some ways. Interesting. Yeah, it was so weird at the time. What what was happening in in England was the the Manchester. Yeah. You know, it was the Sundays. It was like everyone was eat up and like go, you know going crazy to clubs, and he comes out with this like totally alien record. Yeah. And it's not even it's not even like punky or anything. It's really clean. Just check it out. Cause okay. It, it, I like it. Okay. Wow. When you, um, other than November, you know, I probably should have been asking this all along. When you look back at your association with Morrissey, is there a song that's a particular favorite of yours? One that you feel like I, I came up, like you said, with November, I came up with this little bit or I thought we really nailed the production with this one. Is there a song out there that you feel strongly about and as it pertains to well, Morrissey? Uh I think no, November would be number one. Yeah. But I wrote Mute Witness, which is on the... Yes! I'm really proud of that, and I'm I'm playing the guitar on it. Oh, really? Sure. But working with him, he gave me a lot of freedom, hmm. and it was uh, you know like I was talking about things earlier, when you have kind of got a blank canvas, as opposed to you know come on Eileen or something, it's done, it's already there. It, it, you get a lot of satisfaction. So I spent you know a year and a half working with Morrissey, and it was really exciting, really wow. good. Okay. Oh, that's great. Was he, a, I mean, it sounds like you had a really wonderful experience. Was he a prickly personality at all? Were there issues or was it pretty straightforward? <laughs> Were there issues? <laughs> <laughs> you live, you live Morrissey world. Yeah. You, you get, you, you dump your, your family, everything for, to a certain extent, you, you go and live Morrissey world. Got it. Okay. All right. I've had a few people on here who've worked with him and their reaction is very similar. Okay. All right. Let's talk about They Might Be Giants because Flood is a seminal album. I, I'll i be honest. I've never quite come around to them. I do have that album and I appreciate what they do. It's a little, it's almost a little too much on uh, like stand-up comedy or something for me, but things like Birdhouse and Your Soul, that is a beautiful so pop song, no matter who it is. Put too fine a point on it Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet Make a little 
Constantinople. Yeah. That's their seminal record. It's a seminal record of the time. How did this happen? We, I think we were working with Morrison. We just got a tape sent in, and we heard, you know, the demo of Birdhouse wasn't, again, it wasn't that dissimilar ah. to the way to the way it ended up. It's just we made it miles better. To me, it always sounded like a, a great pop record, mm-hmm. and and they were they were like really nice to work with. Uh, we worked in New York. I don't know what to say, really. That okay. I've said. I mean, they're, they're, Birdhouse. Yeah, we we helped to make it a, a hit. I, I remember changing the rhythm from boom, bum, boom, bum, boom, bum, boom, to boom, bum, boom, bum, boom, bum, boom, bum, boom, 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 You know, added nice. things like that. There's, you know, that's what a producer does. Mm-hmm. And you know, the sound was amazing. It was pure. The first record we made that was just computers, I think computer drums because we weren't electronica you know yeah we normally recorded bands with real drum kits and everything but it was just a re- re- kind of refreshing kind of record to make yeah okay they seem like just really decent guys you know yeah they're very smart very intelligent very sensitive and we got on on in in you know most ways good okay you know, and we you sort of touched on this. What song or th- project that you've worked on, maybe it's one we've talked about, maybe it's not, provides the most recurring revenue for you? What what brings in the most mailbox money? Well, I'd probably come on Eileen in our house and okay. all those things. But I want to mention a record called Weekender by a band called Flowered Up. Ooh. And it's a... a an 11 minute recording and it's quite bonkers and it got to about number 21 in England which is incredible for an 11 minute song we did yeah. I did that without Alan and I just want to say I'm quite proud of that one yes so I don't know, you know check it out we will fascinating what year would that have been around oh, 90 okay okay well, that's right. My wheelhouse. I don't know this one, or I don't think I do. I'm gonna have to go back and check that out. Okay. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. Um, uh, it's something I did. You know, it was like a pro- one of those projects, like an adventure, like some of those records that become an adventure. And it was just after working with, with uh, Morrissey. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Okay, I'll check it out. Okay, let's talk about Hot House Flowers for a minute because that first album had Don't Go on it.
And yep. they kind of came out of nowhere. And again, speaking as a Yank from the States, we, we didn't have a lot of frame of reference for this kind of deeply Irish pop music. But I was hearing it yeah. on alternative radio at the time. What was that like? That, again, was an amazing project. We were just invited by London Records to go to Ireland, see this new young band that they thought were really exciting. And I went over there, and I remember saying to them when we were doing the first album, I feel like I haven't felt since the first Madness record with mm -hmm. you. You know, they, they were so kind of natural and kind of gifted and full of a lust for life. And we just had fun. And then they came over and they come to my house and they meet the children, you know, the babies and the, whatever. And they were, they were just like really nice people. I mean, the, the Irish are kind of nicer than us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 When, um, you know, your production style, well, you know, I guess by the 90s it changed. I'm thinking of 80s things that are, that sound like they come from the 80s, you know, but then by the 90s, Bush is the furthest thing from, that epitomizes the 90s. But their Hothouse Flowers is sort of stripped down, folky, Would did they, was that an understanding between the two of you? Did they come to you and say, we want to keep this as, you know, as stripped down as possible? Or did you think that was best for them? What was the thinking? I think it, they sounded good. And yeah. the, the Water Boys have just put out uh, Fisherman's Blues, mm. which is an amazing album, incredible. I mean, it's still a bit glittery, the first Art House Flowers album. It's still a bit 80s. You know, Alan likes a few effects on his uh -huh, snare drum. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't bare. It wasn't the bride strip bare. You know, well, it, it, they were folky, weren't they? Yeah, they were, yeah, they were, they were. It was a pleasure to work with those instruments, and they were talented. You mm -hmm. know, the bass player play all the mandolins and the you know, yeah. so you didn't have to get someone in. You didn't need to get a string section because they could do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, they were special. I wish they had been able to kind of keep it going, but <clears throat> great band. So different yeah. at the time, you know, so out of nowhere. It was a refreshing thing. But they had a problem that they, they they found it hard to write songs, really. Ah, uh, So, okay. you know, they, they, you suddenly got Don't Go, and it, it, it popped out of nowhere before a record company had signed them. And then it gets to the second album and it's like, right, where are the songs? Yeah. And it's like, uh, oh, you know, we just want to do covers of old folk tunes yeah. or something. Yeah, I could see that. Well, that's most of the stuff. Now, there's a few things that yeah. I, few things that I saw you might have worked on, but I couldn't, I couldn't confirm it. So for instance, the Style Council, did you work with the Style Council? Yeah, on Absolute Beginners. Oh, it's, sure, uh, sure, sure. I mean, absolutely. Beginners was amazing for me because there was, you know, I was working with Gil Evans, with David Bowie, with Star Council, with Sade, everyone, you know, like, and, and in fact, I've told you about that dinner that I had with Julian and mm -hmm. Elvis when just after I argued with Elvis. And uh -huh. uh, in fact, Elvis's song was rejected from that film. Oh. So there were, you know, there's a lot of things that it, just because people were, well known it didn't mean that they were going to get the right. gig you know oh my gosh i like that movie a lot but i really love the soundtrack and you have a great song on there called napoli that uh, yeah. is really beautiful kind of orchestrated incidental music music it's gorgeous you know 
good. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, good. Okay. I wonder. I I wasn't sure what the connection was there. Okay. Let's see. XTC. Yeah, I walked out. Really? Yeah. Oh. What can you do? You want to elaborate on that? On or off the record? Yeah. yeah no. On the record, um, basically, okay. one of them you know, came up to me in, in my right ear and said, "Don't listen to him," and the other one came in in my left ear and said, "Don't listen to him." <laughs> and so I, I I left the room. <laughs> uh, I've had Dave Gregory on here, the guitarist, who. Um, right. Uh, I'm going to assume, you don't even have to confirm, I'm going to assume it was Andy and Colin in each of your ears, and Dave is Switzerland and is a nice man who's just trying to get along. And uh, yeah. that's about how I would envision that scenario. <clears throat> yeah, I just it didn't feel comfortable for me. Yep, I got it. Okay. Um, no, no, I, I don't, I, you know, I actually like a lot of, you know, they've, bloody talented great band yeah 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 i get it well good well clive i mean i i mean i made a as you can tell a huge list and there are some i mean i could get into the weeds on madness i could get into the weeds with bowie and morrissey but i've it seemed more worth it to to skim the tops of so many different things as opposed to go deep on two or three things you know what i mean yeah 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 great keep keep it entertaining yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so last question. Is there, um, I hope you sounded like you bristled a little bit when I asked something similar to this, but is there, do you have a favorite story or a favorite experience or moment or whatever that you just, oh, I can't believe that happened to me. When you look back on your career that I didn't ask a question that provoked the, that memory? When Alan and I turned up in the St. James's Club, being introduced to David Bowie, that was quite interesting because we turned up and we got in this lift and this guy jumped in the lift and turned a kind of screw. It wasn't like you pressed a button. There was some sort of like thing and then he jumped out and then we we go up in this lift and we're looking at each other and going, oh my God. <laughs> and then the door opens and it's David. Hi. <laughs> and... Uh, and there's a bar behind him in his room, a whole bar, like, uh-huh. you know, and he's the barman. That's not a bad memory. Oh, know. man. That's incredible. Was there anyone that you didn't work with that you felt like you could have really helped them shine? I was sent a- across America a couple of times to, to meet Dave Grohl. Ah. Uh. I did want to do that second Foo Fighters record because I, I really like the first one. Yeah, I thought also that would have kind of propelled Alan and myself's a career. Yeah, at that point, and so that was the biggest disappointment. Working with someone else, yeah, Lennon. No, yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Was that ever yeah, on mean, the I, table? I, I, I work, you know, I work with. My hero, Robert Wyatt. So, uh, yeah. you know, that was a dream dream come true. Yeah. Wild. Well, Clive, if you can't tell, you're behind so much music that matters to me. 
And uh, uh, it is an absolute honor to be able to talk to you and throw some of these names at you and hear your stories. It means so much. Thank you for doing this with me. All right. Thank you, John. All right. There you have it. Clive Langer. He's worked on so much music that I love. That was mind-blowing. Now we wanted to close it out with the song that he mentioned in here, Weekender, by the band Flowered Up. I was not familiar with this song, but it is bananas. It sounds like EMF and Primal Scream coming together in a long 12-minute rave session that is just crazy. I love this tune, and I'm so glad Clive turned me on to it. It's wild. Anyway, uh, you guys know how to find us by now. You can like our page. You can send us a message on Facebook. That's what I meant, like our page on Facebook. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We recently started a Patreon page because we've got some stuff we want to give away. There are two tiers. There's the first tier where $2 a month, that's it, puts you, uh, qualifies you to win any swag we ever have on here. There's also a $5 a month tier that you can contribute to as well. That allows you to find out who I'm going to be interviewing and submit some questions for possible inclusion in the interview, okay? We've got a link to the Patreon page right here in the description of the show. So uh, tap on that if you're so inclined. And uh, I think I'm going to save any teasers these days because, like I've said, I, uh, I keep doing the teaser and then I change my mind or there's a technical issue or whatever. So I think I know what I'm going to run this week or next week, but I'm not 100% sure. So we'll just leave it at that. We also still have a bunch of deep dives and a recap that are all in the can that I think Jan's going to be working on. Hopefully you guys see at least one or two of those later this week, okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.
Stuff them right up your ass. 